hope you choose the Lord too. Amen. That's good. I choose the Lord. That's a good song with a great message. Amen. Well, take your Bible, turn over to the book of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we've been dealing with three reasons we know our salvation is secure. Three reasons we know our salvation is secure. So let's go ahead and read our passage and then we'll kind of do a little bit of a summary and then into the new information a little bit and consider the second in our three-part series here. Again, we're excited about what's coming up uh, this coming uh, March, obviously, and the 24th as we have our big day uh, here at the church, our 25th anniversary. We're excited about that. It doesn't seem but like yesterday that everything kicked off and started. And yet here we are, 25 years later. I just can't imagine it. Every one of you look easily 25 years older. I look the same as always, young, vibrant. But nonetheless, 
25 years. Can you imagine? Honestly, that just seems like a lifetime, and it is really for some, but boy, it's gone so quickly, so fast. Well, we're going to be celebrating that on the 24th, I believe it is, and we're going to have with us two great speakers. And I'm telling you, you're going to want to be here. You don't want to miss it. We've got uh, Brother uh, Pauly and Brother Davison, and both of them are exceptional speakers. And, uh, you know, again, I, I'm not trying to toot their horn, but let me tell you something. Um, they, we booked them five years ago. Five years ago they were booked. Uh, you couldn't get these guys in your pulpit. In t- you'd have to at least have two years out to even get them here. That's how busy they are preaching. And I just want you to know, you're going to have an opportunity to hear both of them, and we're going to have a great time. In the morning, Brother Polly will be speaking that day, and then in the afternoon, we're going to have a, a luncheon, then we're going to have um, a speaking, uh, some, another service right after. We're going to kind of combine our services to make one long flowing af- morning and afternoon, and then we'll be done, and that way we have plenty of time for cleanup and things. But uh, we just want to kind of make it a big day, all day that day, so to speak, And both will be preaching in that uh, session following lunch. And I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss it. So the 24th, it'll be big. It'll be real big. And uh, obviously, our men's conference is also that weekend. So, fellas, you're going to get to hear both of them already. But sign up, get ready for that, as well as the big day. So a lot going on. Looking forward to a great time here in a few weeks. But this series kind of brings us to that place. So next week, we'll be dealing with this as well. Three reasons we know our salvation is secure. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, last week when we gathered, we learned that the writer of this particular epistle is none other than the Apostle Peter. And after meeting the Master, Peter would leave a thriving fishing business to travel the countryside with the Lord Jesus Christ. It boldly confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And yet it wouldn't be that awfully long after that he would deny him three times. Repenting of his cowardness, his cowardness I, I wrote that word in my notes and I'm trying to say it properly. Cowardice, there it is, I had to look at it. <laughs> I'm sorry, certain words I have a hard time with and I don't want to go into that, but my family makes fun of me all the time. And really, that's the real problem. My confidence has been shot. But repenting of his cowardice, he would uh, be called upon to preach a spirit-filled message at Pentecost. And of course, we know the result of that message. 3,000 people saved and baptized and added to the church. Peter would be called upon to witness of the resurrection of Christ in the culture in which he lived. And as a result, he'd be tested by persecution. Despite every attempt of the godless culture and the godless uh, people that lived in that culture to silence him, I mean to tell you, Peter remained faithful and he continued to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We learn that Peter's epistle was written to the stranger scattered throughout Asia Minor. And the word stranger here points to 
the fact that these believers, although may have, they have been settled alongside the citizens of this world, they really were simply sojourners and pilgrims in the land. They didn't quite fit. They were a piece that wasn't quite fitting the puzzle, if you will. But although strangers in the world, we learned that they were not strangers to God at all. That God knows his own, and these particular believers were no different. And they may have been scattered throughout Asia Minor, and they may have been the victims of growing hostility, but God knew who they were and where they were. And as a result, he assured them that his grace was with them, that his peace was at their disposal, that in spite of the horrific situation they found themselves in, they knew that they could rely upon Jesus Christ and his spirit, that his resources were available to them. He'd go on to point out that God had begotten us again into a lively hope, a hope I guess hope in general is always kind of focused on the future, isn't it? It has to do with the future in mind. And the believer's future is one of great hope because it's one of anticipating the glorious and certain resurrection uh, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, death can't keep you and I down if you know Christ is your Savior. The grave can't hold you. And we learn that Our hope is based on, again, something extremely substantial. And that that hope is based on the resurrection of Christ himself from the dead. And that's where our great hope lies. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Our triumphal exit is a direct result of the fact that he exited the grave. I mean, we have this hope because we know that if he had victory over the grave, if he was able to overcome death, so will we. So when a person places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and they place their faith in the finished work of Christ, not their own effort or their own abilities, they're saved from their sin, they're washed in the blood and they're included in the family of God immediately. Everlasting life is theirs from that point on. And as the passage says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A glorious resurrection assures us that we're saved eternally. The fact that he rose again is proof positive that he can save and secure our future as well. And I'm glad that he did. See, this morning now, we're going to consider the next verse. That was from verse 3, but now we're going to look at verse 4 today. And we're going to focus on another reason that we can know our salvation is secure. See, not only can we rest assured in a glorious resurrection, verse 3. But we can know our salvation is secure due to verse 4, a guaranteed reservation. A guaranteed reservation. And so let's have a word of prayer and then we'll look at that particular aspect and see why we have or can have such great confidence that our salvation is secure. That once we've come to Christ, we are His and our future is settled. It's not based on our own ability, effort, or work but solely on His grace and mercy. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You again for this time together. We ask that You would speak to our hearts through this simple message, through the passage that, Father, You have directed us to. May You be glorified in it. Thank You, Father, for Your love and grace. But, Lord, today there may be those in our midst who have uh, have not trusted or received Christ. 
There may be those that have believed themselves to be saved because of their upbringing. But Lord, salvation is not something that we inherit. It's not something that we, we get uh, by just being around others that are children of God. We must personally receive and accept your son. We must make a conscious decision to trust and receive him as our Savior, our Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that before we leave, there wouldn't be one person in this room that wasn't confident and secure in their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would just give us greater confidence from your blessed book, the Word of God. We desperately need you now. Bless us, protect us, and watch over us. Guard our hearts today. Father, may you keep Satan from stealing the Word of God. Put a hedge about us. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So a guaranteed reservation. That's what we want to address and deal with. In 1 Peter chapter 1, again, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. See, Peter tells us that our inheritance is incapable of decay. It's incapable of defilement. It's incapable of default even. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, the word for inheritance here in the passage as well, it speaks of an inherited property. That's the gist of the word. And and if you would take it and you'd run it through, you find that this word as used here in this passage speaks of an inherited property. It has to do with our future condition at the return of Jesus Christ. It has to do with that new order of things that will take effect once he returns. In the Old Testament, the prophets would speak of a new order that would be ushered in at the coming of Jesus Christ. They envisioned the Messiah, of course, sitting on the throne of David, ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. We often refer to this as the millennium. They saw themselves head of the nations. They saw, them, they saw the, the world being blessed with peace and prosperity and power because of Jesus Christ on the throne of David. During that time, it must be remembered, however, that the inhabitants of this particular earth will still have that unredeemed Adamic nature. Remember when Adam fell, something went totally awry. He was created in innocence, but then he sinned against God. And when he sinned against God, a part of him died that day. We talk about man being tripartite, body, soul, spirit. I want you to know that Adam was complete prior to the fall. But as a result of his sin against God, that spirit compartment died that day. And now he was functioning on the flesh and the soul. By the way, dogs and cats have souls, but they do not have eternal spirits. Adam had an eternal spirit. And that spirit died to God that day in the garden. And he was no longer complete in God or complete as a human being any longer. He was no longer in that sense in the image of God. Now he's in the, we'll find that his offspring are in the image of Adam himself, fallen. And may I say that as you and I are born, we are born into a fallen nature. We're born incomplete. And we need a new birth, a regeneration. One would think, well, surely with Christ himself literally and visibly reigning upon the throne in in Jerusalem and living on earth with the people, that the nature of man would no longer rule them. That somehow they would gain strength to overcome that nature, seeing that they can literally see Christ right before their very eyes. 
They can literally touch him and hold him. For sure that, that, that they'll be able to submit themselves to his leadership. For sure they'll be able to give themselves to his authority. He's there. He's right there in their midst. But that won't be the case at all. Even though Christ himself will be seated on the throne of David, even though he will be there in Jerusalem for all to see and to, to, to literally see with their eyes and touch with their hands, they'll still harbor rebellion in their hearts, many of them. See, once again, mankind will be proved wrong. Isn't it interesting how you talk to so many people and they make, they make claims. They say, well, you know, if only I could see him with my own eyes. If only I could see him right before me now. I would believe if I could see him. That's a lie. And it'll be proven a lie in the, in the millennium. Men, men and women both will see the Lord Jesus Christ literally before them. And yet they will still harbor resentment for his leadership and his authority. They still will not submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of an environment where he is ruler. And someone says, yeah, but I've read the book. And it says in Philippians that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. My friend, that isn't there yet. We're not there at that point in history. That's still beyond that point. The Bible tells us that Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Take your Bible, look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, the Bible speaks of this rulership. And it says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. We don't have time to get into the prophetical aspect of chapter 12, but may I say that we note that that has to do with Israel, and we're seeing that the offspring of Israel will be ultimately, we know the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we see that through some genealogies and so forth. He himself will rule Christ himself on the throne of David. He'll rule with a rod of iron. In chapter 19, verse 15, it says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Someone says, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means that Christ, the righteous judge, will demand obedience to his laws. He'll require them to obey his rules. And it will be consistent. There will not be a two-tier justice system or three-tier or four. It will be one. Either you will be obedient or you will not. You will either be right with God or you will not. You will either obey God or you will not. And in that period of time, people will be afraid to rebel openly. Because Christ will be seated, ruling with a rod of iron. They'll be afraid of, of that iron rule. They'll be afraid of the punishment that will come, the swift punishment. And as a result, they will not sin openly necessarily, but in their hearts, my friend, they still have that atomic nature. In their hearts, they'll still be resenting the authority that he represents. He is a holy potentate. He is a just king. He is a righteous judge. And yet people will resent his iron rule. Why? Because it will, he will not permit them freedom to fulfill their evil desires, to fulfill the lust of the flesh, to sin as they choose. I suppose that one might be able to say that this is a proof text to say that you can't legislate morality. 
but it certainly will detour it. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. An interesting thing takes place prior to the millennium. We're going to see that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he takes Satan and he binds him. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. It's no coincidence it's a thousand years. It's during the millennium. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, watch, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So at the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed a little season. For that thousand years, he will be bound. For that thousand years, he will be not heard from. For that thousand years, those inhabitants of earth, although they have the atomic nature, will not have the igniter. Oh, the wood will still be there. But that flame of fire that ignites it will not be. And yet they'll still in their hearts rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. However, Satan will be loosed. And when he is loosed again, he will go about seeking those who have that resentment and that rebellion in their hearts. And he will promise them that they can overcome Jesus Christ. He'll convince them that under his leadership, they can once again rule that they do not have to put behind them or they don't have to do without the flesh, that they can fulfill the flesh, that they can once again live free to, to serve their flesh and to do as they please. And so he will gather them together and they will march on Jerusalem. <laughs> but once again, even as chapter 19 proved, they will fall on their faces. The hammer will come down. But the reality is still this, that even the millennial kingdom will be defiled in the end. Even the millennial kingdom will fade away due to corruption. It will end bad. But here's what's so wonderful. The New Testament raises our sights much higher than that. Much higher than a mere millennial kingdom. As great and glorious as that kingdom is, I'm telling you that we have something even better to look forward to. See, corruption is a decaying process. The millennial kingdom will begin with the greatest of expectations and the most wonderful hope. People will be excited that Christ is ruling and reigning on the throne. He will have delivered them from the clutches of Satan and from the wreck and the mess that the world had become. But I'm telling you through the years and over the years, people will forget what it was like. And they'll once again love the flesh and they'll desire to be able to act out in the flesh and to live their lives as they please, to rebel against God himself. Those seeds of corruption, however small they may be, will ultimately bring decay. And through deceit and deception, Satan will fuel that atomic nature and bring rebellion. 
causing a sad end. But our inheritance is not like that at all. Turn, if you would, again to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. I tell you what, stay in Revelation. I don't want you to have to skip right back over it. Let me just read it again. And we'll be right back in Revelation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is now. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. We said that the word inheritance in the passage deals with an inherited property. Well, our inheritance is not a millennial kingdom, but a new city, a holy city. Take your Bible now. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. This is an amazing inheritance that we have today. And it is an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and it fadeth not away. Notice what it says. And I saw a new heaven, chapter 21, verse 1, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John saw the holy, heavenly Jerusalem coming down from God. And we see it described in chapter 21, verse 18 and 19. Turn there. It says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, and the city had no need of the sun. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong passage. Yeah, I skipped. I, I got ahead of myself. Cut that one. Go to 21, 18 and 19. We see it described there. I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself. I'm so excited about getting to the end. Revelation 21, 18 and 19, again, we see this heavenly Jerusalem coming down from God. Notice it being described in Revelation 21, 18. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. Verse 21 continues. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it was transparent glass. Boy, I mean to tell you, in that particular city, sin will be banished from its streets. That particular city, its walls are made of jasper. Its gates are made of pearls. It, as a matter of fact, are pearls. Men, can you imagine a pearl large enough to be a gate? And we buy pearls today and they're so expensive and they're so small. They're kind of like the fun size. But boy, in that day, we're going to have a big pearl and it'll be a gate. Not only that, but the streets will be of gold and its foundations will be ablaze with precious gems. What an amazing place this new Jerusalem will be. And it will, it will create a, and God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Why must he do that? Because Satan and sin will have defiled everything else. I mean, this particular universe in which we live in the earth, it has been defiled by sin. Even the, new, even the, the millennial kingdom, again, being tainted with sin. And yet, may I say that in that day, a new heaven and a new earth will be created. And there will be that new Jerusalem there. And it will be the center, the pinnacle of God's existence. 
that city will be incorruptible, incapable of decay. But not only that, the Bible tells us here in our passage that that not only will our inheritance be incorruptible, but it'll be undefiled. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 7 now. 21, verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will shew thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and shewed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know about you, but we have an inheritance, a physical inheritance even. New Jerusalem that is incorruptible and undefiled. Why? The Bible tells us that, it, that nothing that defileth will even be permitted in. Boy, what a wonderful thing to know that our inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled. But our inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled. And because it is, it fadeth not away. Look, if you would, in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. There in the passage it says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. I want you to notice again, there shall be no more. No more what? No more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. Why? Because the former things are passed away. See, this is a city, this is an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away. I don't know about you, but that ought to make us excited. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. But you know what? Then comes the crowning moment, the crowning glory of all of it. The best part, if you will. <laughs> Look in Revelation 21, 22 and 23. Christ himself will be there. In the center of everything, he will be there. And we shall see his face. Amen. There in that wonderful city. You say, well, we already saw it. We've been already, we've got our new, our new bodies already. We've got that, that, that the, our robes, our new robes. We've already been in the millennial kingdom, I know, but nothing will compare to seeing him there in that great city that is undefiled and incorruptible. 
Notice what it says in Revelation 21, 22, and 23. And I saw no temple therein. Wow. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And what an inheritance. What a wonderful thing. A city that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. A city that is made gates of jasper, I mean walls of jasper and gates of pearls and streets of gold. And, and then to top it all off, the best part of all, Christ himself will be the light. <laughs> but that's not all. Look back now in 1 Peter chapter 1 again. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 4. It's a wonderful thing to know about something so wonderful. To have the, the, the potential to belong to or to have a part in. But that's not what the passage teaches us today. Oh, no. No. No, it goes beyond that. Notice it says again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Watch, to an inheritance incorrupt, one undefiled that fadeth not away. Here it is now, reserved in heaven for you. I mean, reserved. There's a reservation. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that reservation. I mean, Peter, again, we know that the word inheritance, it speaks of a, 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 you know, this inheritance being reserved for us. We have this reservation in heaven, and it's for me. I have a reservation today. And that word reservation or that word reserved means that it is guarded, it is kept, it is preserved. As a matter of fact, it has the, 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 the idea of being watched over. <laughs> That's pretty big. That's wonderful. This heavenly city with its overwhelming beauty, with its many mansions, and with its glorious presence of Christ himself in the midst, it's reserved for me and it's reserved for anyone that names the name of Christ. Years ago, I was headed to a conference and I arrived at the hotel and the hotel was supposed to be complete by the time I arrived, but when I arrived, it was still being finished. So I enter into the the, the, the lobby, and the, of course there are cars out front, there are workers already in place, but it's not, it's not able to be filled. There's only a floor of it that's done or something, and the rooms were not prepared as they ought to be prepared. And so as I entered, I talked to the, the, the receptionist, and eventually the receptionist said, well, I'm sorry, we have no record of a reservation for you, and, and we don't see it here. And, and I said, I know, but I have a reservation. They said, well, we already contacted everybody that had reservations, and if you had a reservation, we would have already contacted you and told you that it was not going to work and, and that you would need to find other lodging. I said, I'm telling you, I have a reservation. She went and got the manager, and the manager came out, and we began to discuss it a while. And I convinced them. That I said, here's the number. Here's the reservation number that you gave me yourself. I called, this, I called and got this number. They started looking it up, looking through all their files. And this was a number of years ago. They were looking on a computer. They were looking in manual files. They were looking all over. And finally, the manager goes, oh, there I see it now. It had been tucked away back somewhere else. They had misplaced it. But they came across this reservation, had my name on it, the dates I was supposed to be there. And he said, sir, I'm so, so sorry, but 
We do not have any rooms here. I said, I know, but you may not have rooms here. But I said, I'm in another city. I said, I don't have a clue where to go. I said, it's pretty packed in this area. And I said, I see no vacancy signs on hotels coming in. He goes, I know this is a very busy time of the year. There's a, a, not only is your conference going, but there's a number of other conferences taking place. And he goes, but let me see what I can do. He got on the phone and he contacted somebody. Now, while he was on the phone, he, he, I heard him saying, you know, I got a guy over here, blah, 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 blah. And then he hung up and he came back to me and he said, listen, he goes, uh, I really want to apologize again for misplacing your reservation, for not contacting you, for the bill, even for the hotel not being finished on time. But I do have a friend, and he recently took over uh, the management of a brand new facility, and he became, he's the manager there, and he assures me that he'll take good care of you. I was like, yeah, right. I was like, you know, what is this, a no-tell motel tale, you know? I'm going to show up there, and it's like, you know, can I even pull in the driveway without getting a bad testimony or something, you know? And so anyway, I, I ended up making my way over there, and when I pulled in, it was a brand-new building. You could tell it had recently been built. I don't know exactly how long. I don't think it had been more than maybe six months that it had been open for business. I arrived there. I go to the front, and there's a receptionist there again. And I said, listen, I was sent over from such and such uh, a hotel, and, I'm, I'm, and they told me to come over here and see the manager. Oh, yes, yes, we've already. Uh, uh, and she goes into the back. She brings out the manager. The manager comes out, and he says, oh, I was just on the phone not long ago. You're the gentleman, right? I said, absolutely. He goes, well, listen, I, I says, he says, I have a room for you. I, and I, he, my he says, my friend really wants you to be taken care of. He felt so bad about misplacing your reservation, about the hotel not being finished, and the fact that it just, uh, you didn't have a room when you had already booked it and, and, and so forth. I'm going to take care of you. He gives me a card and, uh, you know, a key card, and he says, I think you'll enjoy your stay. I think you'll enjoy the room. If there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And I said, okay. I thought, well, it's a brand new hotel. It can't be too bad. The room's got to be fairly nice. You know, mattresses brand new, everything nice. I jump in the elevator, and as I get in the elevator, uh, uh, he told me my my floor was on the my my room was on the fourth floor, and I got in there, I started punching number four, and it wouldn't take, it just wouldn't take. Every time I punched it, it would get bright, and then as soon as I let it off of it, it it wasn't bright no more. And I'm like, what is going on? I was getting like, oh great, here we go again. And I I kind of stopped for a second, I slowed down, I thought. You know, nothing's by chance, right? So I look around and I see a little sign. It says, "Access to four, uh, no access to 4-4 without key card. <laughs> Seriously? I stuck that card in. <laughs> stayed on and up I went. The elevator opens up and there's one hallway. And there's just a small handful of rooms on that hallway. I walk into my room, and let's just say that for a week, it was wonderful. <laughs> I mean wonderful. Now, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a wonderful way to end a bad beginning. And I was excited about that. But you know what? There's no such ending with those who arrive in the afterlife without a reservation. Doesn't work like that. See, there's only one heaven. Not multiple heavens. There's only one. 
And if you don't have your mansion reserved now, you're out of luck. Thankfully, when we arrive, it will be finished. The Bible tells us in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Man, he's been preparing for a lot of years. And let me tell you something. When I arrive at that city, I want you to know that my, my room will be ready. My mansion will be completed. I don't have to worry about him saying, well, you know, we got started a little late. The contractors didn't show up on time. Things didn't turn out the way we planned. No, I've got a reservation. I've got a reservation to a room and it is going to be complete when I arrive. And not only that, but the old reservation that I make that is made on my behalf on God, from, by God is going to be coming up missing. It's not going to be overlooked. It's not going to be lost in any way. No, it's going to be right where it belongs. Why? Because the Bible tells us that every mansion that's reserved is being watched over. Every reservation is being carefully considered. There's no one being overlooked, nothing being overlooked. I want you to know that God is there today and he's placed the reservation for me because when I received and accepted Jesus Christ, that very moment I had an inheritance and it was reserved for me. And man, he's watching over it and he's making sure. Now, nah, we're still good. I'll tell you what, that Mark O'Donnell there, he's reserved. He's got his mansion. There it is. He trusted Jesus. He trusted me. He's good to go. He's settled. I'm not going to lose that. Let me put a bookmark on that one right there. And I'm going to tell you something. If you've reserved a reservation, if God's placed that reservation for you, he will not overlook it. He won't misplace it. It'll be there when you get there and your mansion will be complete and it'll be smooth sailing. You'll exit this life. You'll enter into the new and you'll have what God has for you. My friend today, you can't take a chance on going into eternity without a reservation. You can't think somehow you're going to pull under the carport of heaven and go in and ask for a mansion at that time. If you don't have a reservation, you're going to miss out on everything God has for you. And we have a reason to be confident. So how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm going to heaven? Well, what about I did this sin and I did that thing after I got saved? I'm going to tell you something. The very moment I got saved, the very moment you got saved, there was a reservation placed for you. You had an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's settled. It's done. And honestly, I'll be honest with you, I'm not big enough and neither are you to wreck and ruin what God has done on my behalf. We know we're saved. We know our salvation's secure because we have a reservation. It's reserved for us, that inheritance is. A reservation guaranteeing our mansion in that holy city, New Jerusalem. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. I wonder, do you have a reservation? Are you just hoping there'll be a vacancy the day you die.
Jesus Christ came to earth. God himself, Emmanuel, with us. Lived a perfect, sinless life. His reward was a cross. There he hung on Calvary, paying the penalty for your sin and mine. He was buried and he rose again the third day. Why did he come? Why did he die? Why did he rise again? For you. If you've never received and accepted Christ, if you've never acknowledged him as the only payment for sin, if somehow you believe through the years that you could be good enough or your good would outweigh the bad, that being born into into a religious family would be enough, that somehow you could talk your way out of a bad situation, that you could somehow convince him that you are worthy, my friend, you are missing the boat. Only Christ and Christ alone can pay for your sin. You are tainted by the sin of Adam. You are born incomplete and you need Christ and Christ alone to regenerate, to make alive that dead part of your soul, your spirit, to revive you again, to make you complete. The moment that he comes into your life, making you complete and whole here on earth, he gives and grants a reservation to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and it fadeth not away. Reserved in heaven for you. Won't you trust Christ today if you haven't already? Don't leave here questioning or wondering if you were saved, if you're secure, if heaven will be your home one day. You can know these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. If you're a believer today, how will this truths, these truths, affect your life today? How will they affect your walk this afternoon, your talk tomorrow, your life next week? How we take for granted everything God has done. May we not take it for granted. May we remember this wonderful inheritance that is ours, not because we deserve it, but because of his wonderful love, grace, and mercy. And may we live our lives accordingly in gratitude to a Savior that loved us enough to give us everything. Father, we come to you.